What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast, Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. Kev, we are back in the booth, baby. I know it's been a minute, but I got to ask straight up. Dude, how was your Christmas? I know you had a lot Chris- to do. This Christmas weekend. is good, man. Got to uh, got to go up to Georgia, uh, Greensboro, Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, with my girl and her parents and brother. Uh, got to experience the cold yet again. And as Kyle and I have talked about, it is beautiful to just experience just that brisk cold weather once again especially with us living in florida being born and raised from the northeast so just felt a little good to kind of i guess shake off a little bit of the cold rust if you know what i mean so that was super fun just got to get away from florida really get to experience a different place so i just i loved it bro what about you bro it it was great it was just it was just a really laid back christmas this year Uh, i got to spend a lot of time with my family excuse me I got to spend some time with my grandparents. Like overall, bro, it was just a great Christmas holiday. And uh, it was kind of nice just because I think this week I've only had to work four days simply just because I had the Sunday and the Monday off. And typically those are days I work with Amazon. So honestly, it was kind of nice. So now I just, I get to lay back and chill. I could work for the rest of the week and uh, we'll just kind of see where it goes from there. But overall, bro. It was just a great Christmas, and uh, I hope everybody that's listening had a great Christmas as well. Um, I know it's been a minute. Um, honestly, I think we just just decided just to kind of take a break uh, since Kevin and I have really been running and gunning for really the last couple of months with just the NFL. So um, we were thinking about doing an episode earlier this week, but I mean, there wasn't really too much that went on in the NFL that was like major as far as consequences were concerned. Um and even with the power rankings, I don't even think our power rankings really would have changed if I'd put out a short. Um, things really didn't change that much for me uh, based off of what I saw last week in the NFL. But going into this week, uh, we got a lot to cover. Uh, we are coming to the end of the uh, regular season in the NFL. It's it, Kev, it's amazing how fast the season goes by. I mean, I remember we you know, started this back in August and we were talking about who was going to win the divisions. And now it's the end of the year. We're going into 2023. And we still got a lot left to go with the NFL. But it's just crazy how fast the NFL season is just went by. And we're at the end. It's crazy. Time flies, bro. Especially when you're enjoying yourself and, you know, we're participating. Or should I say we're watching, uh, in in our opinion, the greatest sport ever. So, I mean, it's just, it's always going to fly when you're having a good time. But, man, we got a packed agenda for you guys. Again, Hoping everybody had an incredible holiday. Hopefully everybody is going to have an incredible New Year's this weekend. Uh, let's just stay safe and let's just lock into these games and lock into the sports that are coming into the world in the next couple of days. So starting off first, we're going to go over the Dolphins and Patriots game. Uh, both teams are looking to fight for their right to compete in the playoffs this year. Uh, Tua is, ho- I'm saying hopefully for his health-wise, is going to be officially ruled out with another concussion. And the Patriots will have an opportunity to win this game and potentially seal their fate into a wild card berth uh, over the next two weeks with a win at Miami. Or excuse me, with a win in Foxborough, uh, potentially. Then we're going to go into Kyle's boy, who has a, an opportunity to win the division in the NFC South, and that's going to be the Panthers going up against the Buccaneers. Uh, obviously, the Buccaneers win in the last two drives of the game against Arizona, and I mean the Panthers just find ways to. I guess stay relevant. I mean, they, they they came out of nowhere and they beat a hot Detroit team, and that was just a complete shock for not only me, but Kyle as well. And uh, both teams are looking to at least figure out who the hell is going to come out of this horrible division. So this game is pivotal for the, 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 the sake of the NFC South, but nobody else in reality. Um, then we're going to go into two games 
that are going to have a little bit more weight here. Well, not necessarily two. Uh, the, the game after this one's got a little bit more. But uh, the Jets and the Seahawks, both at 7-8, and eight, are looking to, I guess, fight for their right to compete in the playoffs as well. I mean, the Seahawks, they continue to lose games when they need to win them. Uh, the Jets, they lost two straight with Zach Wilson out of the helm. Not a surprise. Mike White makes his return, so we will see if both of these teams can find a way to continue to, I guess, control their own destiny and catapult themselves into a wild card berth. Um, so that game will be very interesting. A lot riding on that one for those individual teams. And then the next game, game of the week, Joseph Burrow goes up against, obviously, Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. Both teams are looking to stay competitive, not only to... Um, well, actually, they both won their divisions already, if I'm not mistaken. So actually, um, both teams are just looking to compete for uh, the top seed in the AFC and home field advantage throughout the playoffs. So that's going to be huge. Uh, both MVP candidates in the quarterbacks there. Both have great teams, um, solid defenses as well. So we look forward to just just watching that entertainment on Monday night. And then we're going to transition into J.J. Watt announcing his retirement from the NFL this week. He has played in this league for about 11 years, and the dominant force that he has been has just been nothing short of incredible. A Hall of Fame resume, Hall of Fame career, an incredible person, uh, a newly found parent. Um, you know, He just had his son, I believe, two, three months ago, so he's going to be able to focus on that dad life. But left behind a little bit of a legacy as well. I mean, TJ is going to be an incredible player in this league for a long time if he can remain healthy with the Steelers. So the Watt name will continue in this league for at least the next five to 10 years, hopefully, if again, if TJ can remain healthy. And then on some more, um, I guess, sadder news or real news, should I say, um, the king of soccer, the king of the beautiful game, as some would say, Pele, the Brazilian native, the World Cup champion three times for Brazil, um, has passed away, unfortunately, at the age of 82. So Kyle and I will talk a little bit about him and his legacy and what he left behind and what he means to the game of football. So, uh, you know, again, like we said, a packed agenda for you guys. A lot to talk about. So let's just kind of get right into it. Um, Kyle. Oh. There you go, Kev. Sorry about that. Uh, the missus was probably calling me on her way home. Uh, so I just lost my train of thought. Kyle, we're going to pivot this one to you. My bad. We're going to go this way. <laughs> She threw off my whole mojo. I swear to God, no, women be good. doing that shit. Women no, be doing good. that shit, bro. <laughs> no, we got oh, the uh, man. We got the Patriots and the Dolphins. Did you mention the uh, the best of and the worst of? I did not actually. My apologies. I didn't know if you wanted to take that one. I just completely no. had a brain fart there once again. No, no, that one's gonna be pretty simple, you guys. Um, essentially, what we'll do is when we wrap up the episode, uh, we're basically just gonna go who we think are the best performers from this past year since 2022 is wrapping up. And then, unfortunately, on the other side of the coin, we got to talk about uh, who we think was the worst uh, performers or who were the worst performers uh, that we saw in 2022. So that'll just be kind of something fun where we just wrap up the episode and uh, we just kind of go over the best and the worst of 2022. But that's pretty much it, Kev. So the floor is yours on this setup for the uh, the Patriots and the Dolphins game this weekend. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with the Dolphins and Patriots, I mean, Miami's eight and seven. They have been absolutely faltering the last three or four weeks the Patriots up and down and up and down and I mean somehow some way both teams are sitting here looking at a wild card spot like within I guess within their grasp so to speak but Teddy Bridgewater is expected to start this game so Kyle with you as the native Patriots fan and you know with this game having so much weight for the playoff berth for both teams who do you think is going to win this game and why Kev I'm going to go with the Patriots on this one and it is simply just because that Tua is not going to be able to play this weekend because of those concussion 
symptoms that he's been dealing with since last week's game. And honestly, I think from his perspective, it's probably better that he sits out this game just because, you know, that concussion that he suffered this past weekend, that's his second one this year. I mean, the first one uh, that he suffered against the Bengals was bad enough. And then you have this one on top of that. It's just, he has just been riddled with that concussion bug this year. And it's unfortunate because Tua really this year has been solid, but these last couple of weeks, the Dolphins have taken a major step back when they looked like they were a team that could have potentially been in first place or at least could have been competitive for that number one spot in the AFC East. It's just they've taken some steps back. They've lost some games, some close, some were absolute blowouts. But I think in this game, I just don't really have a lot of faith in the Dolphins to be able to go up against this Patriots defense to put up enough points with Teddy Bridgewater leading the way. And there have been times where Teddy's gotten some starts this year uh, coming in relief for Tua when Tua was dealing with an injury and didn't really do anything to excite me. Didn't really do anything that would put the Dolphins in a position where they could win the game outright. And going up against a defense like the Patriots, granted the Patriots have, ha the Patriots have had their issues this year. Uh, they're a sub-500 team, but it has not been because of their defense. Their defense has been phenomenal this year. They've been able to get a lot of turnovers. I believe they're top five in turnovers this year and their top two with the number of sacks that they've been able to generate so that's something that the Dolphins are going to have to contend with this weekend with a backup quarterback with Teddy Bridgewater and if Teddy's not careful I think Teddy can put the ball into harm's way and could potentially get picked off by that Patriots defense and not only that this Patriots defense has been shown has been showing the last couple of weeks and not only can they turn the ball over but they can instantly convert it into points by getting a pick six or a scoop and score. They've been doing that consistently all year. And there's a very good chance that they could do it once again. They were able to do it against Joe Burrow last week with Marcus Jones uh, taking a pick six back against um, the Bengals last week. And I think in this game, that could happen. I don't know who it's going to be specifically, but nonetheless, that outcome could happen. But I'm not going to say that the Patriots are going to win this one in convincing fashion because when it comes to the Patriots offense, it's been ugly this year. The play calling has been atrocious. Matt Patricia in his first year as the offensive play caller for the Patriots has been a major letdown, and it's been visible uh, with the amount of frustration that Mac Jones has been displaying towards the offensive coaching staff this year. I, to be quite honest with you, Kev, I don't think that Mac Jones is a bad quarterback. I think that he has the potential to be a really good quarterback in the NFL, but you could tell that his regression this year is not based off of what he's done specifically with just his decision-making, I think a lot of it's been predicated on just the inadequacy or the incompetence that the Patriots coaching staff has put him in as far as the position is concerned. Now, that's not to say that Matt Jones doesn't make mistakes and he's you know perfect in that regard. He's made plenty of mistakes, but I just don't think that the Patriots offensive coaching staff has put him in a position to win consistently this year. And you know the numbers kind of reflect that. He's kind of had a down year this year compared to last year in his rookie year. But I think he will be able to do enough against this Dolphins defense. I'm not saying that he's going to go out there and light it up like Patrick Mahomes where he puts three or four touchdowns on the board. But if he could just play consistent football, if he plays within himself, completes around 65 to 70% of his passes, which he's been doing somewhat consistently this year. In some cases, you know, there have been some games where he can complete like 85 to 90% of his passes. So I think there's definitely some possibilities for him to definitely get on the scoreboard, uh, maybe hitting up guys like Jacoby Myers or uh, Kendrick Bourne or Hunter Henry. I think that there's definitely going to be opportunities available for him. It's just 
what is the play calling situation going to be like for the Patriots this week? And I think that's what it's going to come down to. If the Patriots play calling is on point or if it's just consistent in moving the offense forward, I think the Patriots win this game. I'm, I'm not going to say it's going to be a blowout, but I think they're going to win somewhat comfortably in this game. I think this is really one of those games where I think the Patriots defense is the primary factor in why the Patriots win this game. And it's not going to be the offense. I think the offense just can't turn the ball over as far as I'm concerned. If they do that, this game's going to be a lot more competitive. And there could be a slight chance that the Dolphins win this game with Teddy coming in as the backup if the Patriots are turning the ball over and the play calling is inconsistent from Matt Patricia. So overall for me, with the way that I see this game playing out, I'm going to go with the Patriots winning this one by the score of, let's say, 24-17. to 17. I think this is going to be a relatively low-scoring game just because I don't think there's going to be a lot of points scored from either offense just because Teddy's the backup for uh, the Dolphins. you got Mack running the Patriots offense, and the issues on the offense have really been a big impediment for them this year. But I think the main difference in this one is going to be the Patriots forcing some turnovers against the Dolphins, and I think the Patriots are going to capitalize on that to win this one by a one-touchdown score. So that's how I have this game playing out. Kev, the floor is yours. I couldn't agree more. Tua's absence is going to be pivotal, and not to slate Teddy Bridgewater, but he is no Tua Tungavailoa, let's be honest. And I mean, with the capabilities of Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle, and that offense, we know that they are best suited and at their highest capacity when two is behind and under center Miami's defense also hasn't been playing great the last couple of games I mean if you look at it they've allowed 33 23 32 and 26 points in their last four they have not been able to stop a nosebleed and I know that the offense hasn't been really giving them many opportunities to at least get rest or to you know make their small but um, quantitative defensive stops anything meaningful but when the offense is going out they're getting three and outs are only getting field goals the defense is consistently on the field like we've talked about all season and they just don't look competent honestly they just don't look like they are able to go out there and create stops which is what the offense needs in order to get back on the field get into a rhythm and unfortunately with the Patriots defense being as good as they are I think that they are going to struggle with them being in their second with them being on their second string quarterback and then of course Excuse me, with their inability to run the football. We know that Mostert was able to get a lot of yards against Buffalo, but for whatever reason, they abandoned the run game early against Green Bay. Mostert and Wilson were just kind of like left behind, and it was just completely confusing. So uh, Mike McDaniels has been a great offensive-minded coach, but in terms of having to rotate through quarterbacks, having to go through consistent changes on the offense as well, um, he does look like he is struggling as well as the team as a whole, whereas Bill Belichick... He's been in the same MO, same mindset. It's going to be Mac Jones. We're going to run the football, and we're going to play good defense. And this is going to be in Foxborough, so I am hoping that this is going to be at least competitive. Um, I would like the Dolphins to, to come out on top for the sake of my brother, but I just don't see that happening. So I'm going to agree with Kyle. I think this is going to be a, a lower-scoring game because the offenses of both teams are pretty lackluster uh, recently, especially for Miami. But with the big playability of Tyreek Hill and Waddle, I'm not going to go out there and say Miami gets blown out just because it takes one deep pass to get right back into a game. So I'm going to say that this is going to be not a three-point game. I'll say this is probably going to be seven. Um, I got the Patriots uh, 24-17 here, but um, the Dolphins put up a fight in the end. I just, I'm just i hoping that they make it competitive, man, because it, it would just be a shame to go out and lose five in a row to end the season after last year, then winning seven in a row to end their season. So it would just be a tale of two different years, and uh, it just wouldn't be a good look for Miami as a whole. And I guess the question that kind of remains at this point, if we had the Patriots winning this game, is both teams would be 8-8 eight and eight going into the last week of the season. 
And if we look at the matchups between both teams going into that week 18 matchup, we would have the Patriots going up against the Bills. And then we'd have the Dolphins going up against the Jets. So this would be just a divisional matchup for both teams, potentially trying to fight for that last wild card spot going into the playoffs this year. And I guess if I had to give you this one, who do you think would get that last wild card spot between the Patriots and the Dolphins? Would it be New England or would it be Miami? Dude, I don't know. I, I really can't. And that's assuming that New York loses this week too, because they would both be all three of them would be eight, eight, and eight. Or eight and eight, eight all the way eight, across yeah. the board. Yeah. So that's a tough one, bro. I really don't know. That's the AFC East is a complete toss up at this point. Who would have thought three teams would be literally deadlocked at the same record, assuming that this is how it would end in terms of Miami losing, New England winning, and the Jets winning. It, 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 dude, that would be I don't even know if that's ever been like, I don't even know if that's ever happened before in our lifetime. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's probably been some log jams that we've probably may have not paid attention to in the past. Um, but I will say, you know, when you look at all those three teams in the AFC East with the Jets, Patriots, and the Dolphins, I think when it comes to the Jets, I just don't have a lot of faith with them, just based on with the, the inconsistency at the quarterback position. I know Mike White potentially is going to get that starting job back now that uh, – Zach is pretty much done. He's been tossed to the and, side. Yeah, he, I mean, he's already inactive for this upcoming week. So he, he, I think his tenure in New York is done at this point. But when it comes to the Dolphins, I think the level of their fall off the second half of the year has been so striking. I mean, Kev, I mean, I think it was pretty safe to say that halfway through the season, Tua was at the top of the MVP discussion. I mean, I saw multiple reports whether it's like from Bleacher Report or ESPN or SportsCenter, where they had Tua as their midseason MVP with how well that the Dolphins were playing. And in the second half, I mean, it's just all unraveled. And, you know, the fact that... They've played the, good the, competition, though. That's the, the thing. The, the fact that their playoff chances have gone from basically damn near locked up to where now it's a question mark is kind of astonishing. And they got to be careful. I mean, if they win this game against the Patriots, I think it locks it up for them. They just can't falter in the last week. But, I mean, overall, I just can't believe that that they faltered this much to where their playoff chances are really, honestly, kind of hanging on by a thread. Because I think as of right now, they have the last wild card spot. I think they're the seventh seed as of right now. And then the Patriots uh, and the Jets have the same record, but the Patriots had the tiebreaker over the Jets because the Patriots swept the uh, divisional series against the Jets this year. So, right. Yeah. When it comes to the Patriots, man, I mean, they've got their chances, but I mean, you know, there's still some other teams that we have to kind of consider in this, I guess this formula as well. You got the Steelers are still kind of in that hunt as well. They're sitting at a seven and eight record. Um, They, they play against the Ravens this weekend. The Raiders technically have a chance, but I I mean, they're at six and nine. They would have to get a lot of help. I just don't think that that's going to happen. Um, actually, I think they might already be eliminated from the playoffs at this point. Or if, if they are eliminated, it would be because based off of what happens this weekend. But I mean, overall, I mean, the way that this last seed for the wild card is going to go down, it's just going to be absolutely nuts. It's just, we'll kind of see where it goes. Um, in these last, yeah, because it's, it's the it's the only spot left in the AFC because Baltimore locked up a wild card spot, and then yep. with the Chargers winning on Monday night against the Colts, they locked up their playoff chances as well. So yeah. this is legit for all the marbles. This last spot is 
this is critical. it. Yeah, it's critical. I mean, I, I, I mean, not only that, I mean, I, to me, I think this is really a, a three-team race at this point. I think it just comes down to the Patriots, the Dolphins, and probably the Steelers. You could maybe throw the Jets in there. You know, we'll see what happens with them. Uh, they would have to get some help from the Patriots. The Patriots would have to lose a couple games. Uh, there's a chance that the Patriots could lose in Week 18 to Buffalo because Buffalo could potentially still be playing for that number one seed. So true. Patriots are going to have a tough road, but I, the way that I see it is I think this is legitimately going to be a, a three-team race going into the last week of the year. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. But, uh, Kev, we got to... Uh, we got to kick it over to the NFC. We got a pretty big divisional matchup this weekend between the, uh, I think we got the Bucks and the Panthers to talk about. So I'll let you take this one from here. This is another weird one, man. I mean, the, the, the Panthers are six and nine. The Bucks are eight and seven. They're both fighting for a division title, which would, in theory, if the Bucks were to lose this game, <laughs> this would legitimately end in an under five hundred team getting into the postseason as a four seed. So, Kyle, I mean, I, I, I'll i just kind of throw it your way, man. Who in the hell is coming out of this game and why? I'm going to go with the Bucks on this one. And, Kev, I don't have a lot of faith in this one in any way, shape, or form. Kev, we're coming off of the heels of probably one of the worst games that the Bucks have won this year. Kev, they damn near lost to a third-string quarterback with the Arizona Cardinals last week. And it took them to overtime to get them this win against the Cardinals last week. I mean, that should have been a relatively comfortable win for Tampa, but the fact that it was that competitive, and to be quite honest with you, Tampa looked like they were going to lose that game just because up until what I would consider the last five to six minutes of the game, Tampa had three points. They just can't generate any offense consistently. And if they do, it's probably going to come with a consequence of somebody holding on the offensive side of the ball and then that just sets them back. It just There's no rhythm. There's no consistency. The offense has just been, as far as I'm concerned, they've just been an absolute tailspin this year. And it's simply just because the offensive line just continues to be the main issue with this offense. I know a lot of people will point to Brady with him having a down year, and it is true that he's having a down year. The way that I see it with Tampa is their offense is so sped up this year. Just the timing is not there. The chemistry is just all out of sorts, and it's really predicated on what the offensive line has not been able to do this year, which is produce effective football. And not only that, they're, they're one of the worst teams of running the football, but I believe they only average like 70, 75 yards a game rushing the ball. So it really is just kind of a one-trick pony with Tampa's offense, and it's basically Brady or die, and that's pretty much how they've been running this year, and it's largely been unsuccessful this year. But you know the way that I see this game playing out, I think that Carolina is going to keep this game competitive. And in the first matchup where we saw these two teams go at it, granted, that was a couple months ago. Carolina smacked them up. Carolina played effective football against Tampa. Uh, they had kind of their own situation at the quarterback spot in that game. But overall, they were able to do enough to be able to put points on the board and just really keep Tampa at bay with not being able to put up points in the process. And I think if, if Carolina is able to win this football game, it will be on the heels of their defense, limiting Tom Brady and the Tampa offense to basically a mediocre performance. And I think that there's a very good chance that they could be able to do that. I think that when it comes to Carolina, they know Tampa very well. You know, these two teams play twice a year. And based off of the first performance, 
it may seem like Carolina may have the advantage when it comes to slowing down this Bucks offense with how bad Tampa has looked this year. But I think Tampa's going to learn from their mistakes in the first matchup. And that first matchup was a long time ago. And I imagine Tampa's going to look at that film and they're probably going to be disgusted at what they saw and probably learn from their mistakes. Uh, this game is played in Tampa. So I imagine that Tampa's going to try to generate some sort of electricity. You know, the fans got to step up and try to give Tampa some sort of life in that game. And, you know, maybe they'll get it from the fans in this one. But overall, I think Tampa wins this one by the skin of their teeth. I think Tampa wins this one probably around the score of like, oh, God, Kev, I don't know. Score might be like 17 to 13. I I think this is going to be a very low-scoring affair. I think Tampa's going to struggle offensively until the fourth quarter. And I think they may may be able to make enough plays at the end to get across the finish line here. I think this is going to be an extremely defensive battle. I think Tampa's defense is going to keep um, the Bucks in it. And that's really been the only reason why they've been competitive this, this year is that that defense has been playing excellent football as far as I, I've seen it. And I think that's the only reason why that they're still competitive to win the NFC South at this point. Because had that defense faltered in any of their close wins uh, this past season, I think they would be out of the playoffs at this point. But... You know, you got to give credit where credit is due. Tampa's defense has stepped up. I think they will step up once again against the Panthers in this one. Albeit, I don't think it's going to be in convincing fashion as far as the team is concerned with winning this game. But I think Tampa goes out there. They get the dub uh, this upcoming weekend, and I think they clinch the division. But it's going to be by the skin of their teeth as far as I see it, Kev. Floor is yours on this one. I'm actually going to go the complete opposite. I'm going Carolina, and it's no slate or disrespect to Tom Brady, but the way that this team has been playing up and down and not really stepping up until pretty much like the last few minutes of games, uh, to me, it's kind of just like disrespectful. It's like, where has this been all season? Where is that all? Ha- where has that offensive capability been all game? I don't know why it takes a team 50 minutes out of 60 to kind of get it together finally in that last couple of minutes, like I said. So I, I, I truthfully don't comprehend what's going on in Tampa. Tom has been turning the ball over a little bit too much recently. And I know that that's in large part because of the offensive line issues and the lack of being able to run the football. But I'm going to go with Carolina because I think that Carolina had a pretty big game against Detroit last week showing like they can beat good football teams. And Detroit was on a six or seven game win streak at one point. So that was absolutely huge for them to not only beat them, but blow them out. And uh, what they were able to do to Detroit on the defensive side as well was pretty significant for me to keep one of the hotter offenses in the NFL under wraps. And then you go and you kind of talk about uh, what Sam Darnold's been able to bring to the table since he's been inserted back into the starting lineup. And it's been nothing short of incredible. I mean, nobody thought that he would be able to do what he's been doing since he's been back from injury. And yet here we are. Sam Darnold is, is diamond it up. He's tossing pretty much touchdown after touchdown recently. And I know his numbers aren't exponential, but again, with what they have going for them in Carolina, I would say that he is doing just enough. And Chubba Howard has been having a pretty good season when he's been actually given the opportunity to outside of Donta Foreman and whatever have you. So um, I'm going to say that Carolina remains relevant. I mean, what they did to Tampa the last time they played was nothing short of embarrassing for the Buccaneers. And I know that Tom Brady is going to remember that. I know that he typically does well in the second rekindle or, or, or rematch not rekindle in the rematch against division opponents but for whatever reason man i just i think the bucks struggle i think the carolina gets hot and uh i think that sam darnold uh can potentially bring a division title to the uh carolina panthers for the first time since what 2015 when they went to the super bowl 
which is just crazy to me to think that they've been that bad since. But, I mean, here we are. And, uh, yeah, no, I got uh, I got Carolina all day in this one. I don't have, really have a score because I don't know enough about both teams to kind of give a prediction. And if Tampa's offense is anything like it has been all year, this game is probably going to be well under the 20s because Tampa can't move the ball downfield until the fourth quarter. So we'll see what happens. But I got uh, I got Carolina moving to 7-9. and nine. I, get, I, I get it. It's not as if I don't understand it. Uh, that first matchup, Panthers smacked him up. And um was that 21-3, 28-3? It was a beatdown. It was an absolute beatdown. I mean, granted, it wasn't like the Panthers went out there like won the game by like 30 points. No. But it felt like it. It felt like it based off of what that defense was doing against Tampa. And Tampa couldn't get any offense generated whatsoever. So I imagine, you know, for Tampa watching that film earlier this week, it was probably it's probably tough. That's kind of putting it mildly. But there was something that I wanted to kind of hit on. It was a video that I saw uh, post game uh, in the Bucks locker room after they beat the Cardinals, and it had to do with the body language of the team in the locker room when they were getting addressed by. I'm drawing a blank here. Who's the head coach for the Bucks? I can't believe I'm drawing. Oh, Bowles. Yeah, Todd Bowles. Todd? Thank you. I'm watching Todd Bowles give like kind of like the 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 post game locker room speech. And I'm going to be honest with you, Kev. He doesn't inspire the players. A lot of the guys that are just listening to him speak, they're just kind of like, oh, they're just kind of like, oh, hum. Like they're they're going to listen to what he says, but there's no energy. There's no excitement that's generated based off of what he's saying. It's not that Todd Bowles is a bad guy or anything like that. I just don't see Todd Bowles as the right coach to energize a group of men like that in the locker room. And you could tell that when it comes to the Bucks specifically, a lot of the motivation and the, the energy that they're getting from the team is mostly coming from players like maybe like Mike Evans or Devin White. Like those guys are the vocal leaders in that locker room. And I think they're feeding off of the energy from those guys in particular just because they're not getting it from their head coach. And I think one of the things that maybe we have to start taking into account more often is, you know, when it comes to head coaches, you know, can you be able to energize the players in that locker room to be able to run through a brick wall for you? And I think when you look at a lot of teams, even if those teams are relatively struggling, I'll give you an example. Look at Dan Campbell with the Lions. I'm fully convinced Love that him. that team will run through a brick wall for him. Is Dan Campbell the best coach in NFL history? No. no. But I think a lot of players back him based off of just the energy that he brings. And I just think that the the environment that he creates just based off of his presence alone, I think it's infectious. And I think it really gets the team riled up in a position where they can go out and they really are convinced of, you know, let's go out there for our coach to win this one. Ron Rivera is probably another guy like that. Ron Rivera doesn't doesn't seem like to me like a big like rah-rah type of guy. But I think in any given moment, I think he just knows the right thing to say at the right time and kind of the the right tone as well. And I think that just that that type of energy or the environment that they bring into that locker room, I think it's pivotal. But I just don't think that Todd Bowles is that guy. I think Todd Bowles' bread and butter is being a defensive coordinator. You know, when it comes to his ability to head coach, it's not strong. And honestly, the track record kind of shows it at this point. 
But I, I think when it comes to his defensive capabilities as a coordinator, Kev, he's elite. He's an elite defensive coordinator, and I can't slight him on that in any way, shape, or form. But as a head coach, you have to be able to really rally the troops. And I just don't think that he's able to effectively do that. And it's not because he's a bad guy or anything like that. I just think he's kind of like just a a reserved type of individual. I don't think he's somebody that's really like an extrovert or someone like that, where he really like goes out of his way to really get that team riled up. And like I said, not, not that he's a bad guy. It's Facts. just, he's just not maybe the right person to lead that team. And you can tell based thing. on the, you could tell by the body language of the players that they just don't think that he's that guy to lead that team based on just their overall body language. It kind of speaks for itself, but that was something that I wanted to mention before we go into our next game. But uh, nonetheless, I think this, you know, this this Bucks and Panthers game, I think it's just going to be a grind. You know, it's going to be an ugly game to watch as far as I'm concerned. And most Bucks games this year have been pretty difficult to watch. You ain't but, lying. Uh, but uh, with that said, uh, we're going to focus on a pretty decent matchup that we have that has some pretty big playoff implications for both teams here. Uh, we've got the New York Jets going up against the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, to give you guys a quick roundup of where both teams stand right now, the Jets and the Seahawks have a 7-8 and eight record. Both teams are still trying to vie for a wild card spot with the Jets trying to do it in the AFC, with the Seahawks trying to do it in the NFC. I would say that the path for both teams to get to the playoffs is a little bit challenging at this point, but nonetheless, there is a pathway forward for both of these teams and as far as I see, this is a do-or-die game for both teams going into this Week 17 matchup that's going to take place in Seattle. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, we've got the New York Jets and the Seattle Seahawks going at it in a pivotal game that has playoff ramifications for both teams here. Who do you think is going to come out on top and why? I got to go with Mike White. I got to go with the Jets. I think that defense is elite. I think that defense has shown time and time again, despite whoever's under center, they're going to keep this team in relative competition and I think that with Mike White returning, that is going to put a spark into the offense. It's going to put a spark into the defense to say that we need to win this, not only for our chances to go to the playoffs, but Mike is out here playing with potentially fractured ribs. He's coming out here, and he is just giving everything he possibly can, despite Zach Wilson throwing games away because of how bad he is. Um, the Jets are in this position because their defense has kept them um, at the record that they are. The defense has kept them in games should I say, not the record that they are. The only reason they have seven wins is largely in part because of their ability to limit opponents' offenses. And with Mike coming back, who can expand that offensive playbook and has earned the respect of the locker room, I think that they are going to play 10 times harder for him. And at the same time, I mean, Seattle was at 1.6-3. and three. They are 1-5 in five in their last six games. And their defense is in large part to that. So when you look at their last six, they lost to the Buccaneers 21-16. They allowed 40 points against the Raiders. They allowed 23 points against the Rams in a win. They allowed 30 points against the Rams, 21 against the Niners, 24 against the Chiefs. Like they are just, they're not able to get it done on the defensive side of the ball. And the offense has been very, very lackluster outside of a couple of games where they were able to score over 20. Geno Smith still leads the league in completion percentage, but for whatever reason, this offensive line is crumbling. I saw a big 
uh, chunk of that Chiefs game, and that Chiefs defense was able to get to him time and time again, forcing him to make mistakes and Aaron passes. And I mean, despite DK Metcalf and a couple of the receivers going out there practicing shirtless in negative 10 degree weather, um, they were not able to do much, if anything, on the offensive side. Kenneth Walker was limited. Tyler Lockett's been out for the last couple of weeks with a with a surgery on his left hand. He was a limited return to practice today, so he may play on Sunday, but that is still to be determined. But the Seahawks, man, they've just kind of fallen apart. They've fallen. That's not even a word. They have fallen apart. They have literally just come apart at the seams, and it's at the worst time of the season. There have been a couple of teams that we've already talked about just today. I mean, the Dolphins being number one that have just completely lost every ounce of momentum that they had early on. And at one point, we were talking about the Seahawks to come out on top of the NFC West. San Francisco comes out of nowhere and just storms the castle, and they're on like a seven-game win streak of their own. But that's neither here nor there. I just don't have faith that the Seahawks are going to be able to move the ball offensively with the Jets' defense. I don't think that the Jets are going to allow uh, DK Metcalf and potentially Tyler Lockett to get into any kind of rhythm. And then with Kenneth Walker being limited in practice with his own injury, he may be limited to what he can put on the field as well in this cold weather that's going to be in Seattle. So we'll see what happens. I got the Jets winning in a convincing fashion, probably by 10 or so points. I got this at like... I don't know, 27-17, maybe even 30-17, to 17, something of that magnitude. It's unfortunate because I like Geno Smith. I think he's going to get a decent uh, payday come this offseason for about two, three years maybe to uh, take over an NFL franchise. But uh, it's it's sad. But like I said, I, I got Mike White and the Jets taking this one for sure and uh, hopefully trying to fight for a playoff spot. Kev, I'm, with, I'm in full agreement with you on this one. Uh, it's just based off of what that Jets defense can present against a Seattle offense. When it comes to Seattle, they've just completely faltered the last couple of weeks. I believe they're on a three-game losing streak right now. And like you said, Kev, just to kind of piggyback off the point that you made about Seattle, Seattle just a month and a half ago was in prime position to win the NFC West, and they've just completely fallen apart. I mean, we've gone from Geno Smith being potentially comeback player of the year. We had Pete Carroll potentially being a coach of the year candidate to where now this team is sub-500, and their playoff chances have just completely eroded away. And, you know, going up against a defense like this in the Jets, I don't think it's going to be easy for them. I think they're going to fall short in this one. When it comes to the Jets, I think their biggest thing that they have to contend with is they have to keep Mike White upright. You know, Mike White is coming off of a pretty uh, significant injury that he sustained against the Bills a couple of weeks ago, where Matt Milano... Kev, I think the best way to describe what Matt Milano did to Mike White was he came in like a heat-seeking missile on that hit that he uh, knocked Mike White out of the game uh, due to a rib injury. I know Mike White came back in that game, but you could tell that Mike was not in good form after that hit, and he relatively struggled, and I think he ended up in the hospital post-game because of those injuries that he sustained against the Bills. So when it comes to the Jets, obviously they're, primary factor that they have to contend with here is keeping Mike upright. And if they're able to do that against Seattle's defense, which is suspect, I think that Mike White's going to be able to move the ball up and down the field effectively. Um, I don't know how many points that they're going to score. I don't know if it's going to be like a 30, 35 point performance. I don't really see that happening, but I could definitely see the Jets putting up maybe like 20, 24, maybe 27 points on the high end. And I think that would be more than enough uh, going up against Seattle, because when it comes to Seattle, Seattle's offensive performances have just been lackluster the last couple of weeks. Like you said, Kev, I mean, you know, they've lost five out of the last six games. 
Uh, they've been struggling to score the ball consistently on the offensive side of the ball. Last week, they only scored 10 points against the Chiefs. I know it was in sub-zero temperatures, and I know that probably had a major factor. But even despite that game, you could look at some of their past performances. They've just fallen short, and it's just because Geno Smith just can't get that offense rolling in the right direction. Uh, the play calling seems to be a little bit off. And obviously, you throw some turnovers in there. It's just been a bad formula for Seattle the last couple of weeks, and it's led to the result of them being a sub-500 team with two weeks to go until the end of the year. And as far as I see it, I just don't think Seattle's going to do enough at home to get this win to stay in playoff contention. I mean, this is a do-or-die game for both teams anyway. So I, I imagine both teams are going to be going balls to the wall to try to get this win. But I just believe that this Jets defense is elite. I know that their record doesn't show it because they're a sub-500 team, but it has not been because of the defense. The Jets' defense has been the reason why that they're so competitive this year. It's really been the lackluster performances that we've seen from the offense that has held the Jets back this year. And now that Zach Wilson is more than likely done in New York after he got benched against the Jaguars last week and one of the worst performances that I've seen from him in his NFL career, I think that the Jets are going to be in a position where they're going to be motivated knowing that they're getting Mike White back in the fold. I just think that he's that guy that generates momentum. He generates energy for that offense. And I think when you have those factors combined, I think you're going to get a well-rounded effort from the Jets offense. I'm not going to say it's going to be perfect. I imagine that there's still going to be some issues. Turnover issues with the Jets has been a major concern uh, with them fumbling the ball, having inopportune interceptions. But I think Mike White gives him the best chance to win this game. And I think he'll go out there and give an inspired performance, not just from him specifically, but I think the whole offense will just be inspired to get this win this upcoming weekend. I think it's going to be a competitive game because of the nature of both teams trying to get this win to stay alive in the playoff race. I'm going to go with the Jets on this one. I'm going to say they win by one possession. I'm going to say they win this one by the score of, let's say, 23 to 16. I think it will be a one position game when it's all said and done, but the Jets will bump up to an eight and eight record, keep their playoff hopes alive. And then we'll see what happens when we get to week 18, because all hell can break loose. And maybe the Jets get some help from some other teams. And maybe they can find some sort of pathway forward to get that last wild card spot in the AFC. But as far as this game is concerned, I got the Jets winning this one, a close one, 23 to 16 is what I have it. I mean, aside from, the matchup of the game being, you know, the battle of the line of scrimmage, who's going to hold up, you know, the Seattle's offensive line, as opposed to the Jets defensive line. I'm looking at one matchup, sauce and DK mm-hmm. sauce is the outright favorite for defensive rookie of the year. And then you go and you look at DK Metcalf, one of the most physical wide receivers we've seen in this era over the course of the last five to 10 years in terms of height, speed, strength. I mean, the man is just like physically, just a bigger than average receiver with everything. A man that size should not he's be big, doing what monster. he does. He's a monster. He's an and with sauce, sauce. Uh, New York just came. New York just came out so hard. With, with sauce, sauce Gardner. <laughs> brought the Bronx out. With sauce being one of the more slender, smaller corners, I'm kind of. Curious to see how he's going to combat a very physical receiver that's going to be posed in front of him for the pretty much length of this entire game. Because let's be frank, I mean, aside from being a rookie, the, the kid looks like an absolute veteran that's been doing this for years. And DK's not having the greatest season either with, you know, obviously offensive line struggles. The offense has been struggling. I mean, he's 
still probably one of the best receivers in the league if you really were to consider everything that he brings to the table. But yeah, no, this this is a big matchup that I really want to look into. Like I really, really am curious to see how Sauce goes up against DK for sure. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting with Sauce going up against DK. Bro, I just had to say that. Just for I know, but uh, no. Overall, I think I think this is going to be a low scoring game though. Like, I don't see this being, like, a high-scoring affair where both offenses are lighting it up simply just because I think that Jets' defense is just too good. Like, I know that they haven't shown it because they haven't been winning games the last couple of weeks. I think I think if I look at it right now, I think the Jets have lost, like, four in a row. The, Jet, the, the Jets' last win came in the last week of November. So yeah. they, they bas- they're basically gone the entire month. They will go the entire month without winning a game in December. Which is crazy because they were what seven and four going into the month. At one of point, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy how much they faltered. And, and you know what the crazy thing is, Kev. You know when I'm looking at these, these defensive performances. Okay, they gave up 27 points to the Vikings. They only lost that game by five points. Honestly, that was a game that they probably should have won because they butchered it at the end of the game with the offensive play calling. They only allowed 20 points against the Bills. On the road, it's not bad. They give up 20 points to the Lions, and then they gave up 19 points to the Jacks. Kev, I'm looking at this like, these are not 30-point performances that they're giving up. Like, these are winnable games that the offense could get their head out of their ass. And they just haven't been able to do it. And I think a lot of it was just Zach couldn't do it. And I know I know Joe's kind of stepped in time and time uh, to fill in for relief for whoever was the quarterback at the time. But... It's the offense, dude. The offense just can't get it together. And a part of it is youth. Like, I don't want to, like, miss that point entirely. You could just tell, like, uh, the inopportune penalty calls, uh, the, the inopportune turnovers. That was something that really kind of stood out from the Bills game um, in early December. But it's just the inconsistency of the offense. And it's really been the inconsistency at the quarterback position. And I think Mike has done the best job to put that team in a position to win offensively. But I don't know what it's going to be like. I, I know those ribs are going to still be sore and they're still going to be a little bit tender. Right? I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks since that Bills game. And I don't know if he's still going to be 100%. I think he's going to be like maybe like 85, 90%. I, I don't think that he's all the way. I don't even yet. think I don't even think it's going to be 90, bro. I mean, we're talking about ribs. That's good. That's a lingering injury. So, yeah. I mean, that, that was the reason why I mentioned it's like, the primary factor that the Jets have to do, or one of their primary responsibilities, is to keep him upright. He can't take unnecessary hits. Because I don't know if Joe Flacco is going to be the guy that really gets that offense rolling. I know Zach ain't going to do shit. But, I mean, we'll kind of see. But nonetheless, it's going to be a big game for both teams, uh, for the Jets and the Seahawks. So then the last game that we're going to cover... Uh, for the Week 17 slate is going to be a Monday night matchup, which, to be quite honest with you, Kev, this is the game of the week. This game has major implications that are going to affect the number one seed in the AFC. We've got the Buffalo Bills going up against the Cincinnati Bengals. To give you guys a quick preview of where both teams stand right now, we've got the Buffalo Bills sitting at a 12-3 record. We've got the Cincinnati Bengals sitting at an 11-4 record. The Bills have been one of the more consistent teams in the AFC the entire year. They've been consistently in the top five of our power rankings. The Bengals, on the other hand, have been just a surging team the last two months. They've been on an absolute heater since probably 
maybe the end of October. And they have not looked back since. I believe they're on a seven-game winning streak right now. And as far as I'm concerned, the Bengals look like they're rounding into that Super Bowl form that we saw them make last year where they fell just a little bit short going up against the Rams in Super Bowl 56. So, Kev, nonetheless, I mean, this is going to be a great matchup we got against. Uh, we got the Bills and the Bengals going at it. And I know this game takes place on Monday. I'm glad this game is taking place on Monday night because I think that's what it actually deserves. And I'm actually glad that ESPN is getting a primetime game of this nature just because ESPN has been kind of hurting with their uh, with their primetime games on Monday night. So this is de- definitely going to be a good one. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, we've got the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals going at it with huge implications with the number one seed in the AFC at stake. Who do you think is going to come out on top and why? So, I mean, let's be let's be honest. Buffalo's on a six-game win streak. Cincinnati's on a seven. Both of these quarterbacks are MVP favorites. I mean, Josh Allen, 4,029 yards, 32 touchdowns, 13 interceptions. Joe Burrow, 4,260 yards, 34 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. Almost identical. Insane, right? Two games left to go, but I have to go with Buffalo. Unfortunately, Cincinnati lost Lyle Collins to a torn ACL and MCL for the season. And that is one of Joe Burrow's tackles that has been keeping him upright over the course of the last couple of months. Not to mention, for whatever reason, Buffalo is actually listening to Kyle and I, and they've been running the football. Singletary had over 100 yards. Uh, James Cook had almost 100 yards. I think he had like 98 or 99. And they had over 200 yards rushing as a team uh, combined in their last week. And they have been running the ball a lot more effectively as over the course of the last few games in terms of handing it off and not just giving it to Josh. Now, I will say that Cincinnati has been on a longer win streak, but there have been closer games on the Cincinnati side. I mean, just going back to last week, they almost choked against the Patriots. That was 22-18. Uh, to 18. They started rough against the Buccaneers. That was a 17-point game at one point. The Browns, that was, that was a struggle early on, but it ended up becoming 23-10. to 10. The Chiefs, 27-24. to 24. The Titans, 20-16. to 16. The Steelers, 37-30. The Panthers was the only blowout here. And then the last time it lost was against the Browns, where they gave up 32. Now, the Buffalo Bills, on the other side, they have been able to separate themselves just a little bit more. Not by too much, but they have been winning by bigger margins. Uh, just last week, 35-13, they had a close game against the Dolphins, 32-29. They beat the Jets, 20-12. to Then you go and you beat the Patriots, 24-10 in Foxborough. They had a close game on Thanksgiving against the Lions, 28-25. to And then their last victory before their, excuse me, after their first loss, or after their loss a couple of weeks ago, was uh, 31 to 23. Buffalo's offense is moving. They've gotten healthier. They've been finding ways to capitalize and create turnovers on the defensive side. And again, they have been one of the best teams in the AFC, obviously holding the top spot in the AFC in terms of seeding as they hold the tiebreaker over the Chiefs. I know that the Bengals can be good teams. I know that Joseph Burrow can do this. I, I, I have complete and utter faith. It's just my gut and my head are both finally on the same page. And they are tell- actually, no, they're not. Like, like, <laughs> My my gut's telling me to pick Buffalo, but my head tells me to pick Joe. And I usually go with my gut. But I just feel like the Bills are going to be a little bit too much. The loss of Lyle Collins on that offensive line is going to hurt how the offense is going to be able to move. That's going to limit what time he's going to have in that pocket to be able to throw it to those deadly receivers that we already know about in Higgins 
uh, Chase and Boyd. And then at the end of the day, I think that Joe Burrow is probably going to get sacked about four to five times here just because of the change at offensive line. And I think that Josh Allen is going to be able to capitalize on maybe some turnovers because Joe Burrow has had a couple of turnovers the last week, the last couple of weeks as well. Um, and I think that the, the Bills are going to actually move on to 13 and three. Again, I, I hate picking against Joe. I just feel like the Bills are a little bit more prepared for this one. The Bills are going to be ready. And that, that injury, man, that, that, that left tackle spot, that is huge for the blind spot of a quarterback. And I don't think people understand how that's going to affect the chemistry at that offensive line and what Buffalo is going to be able to do. Now, if they had Vaughn Miller, I would say that this game is probably going to be a route because you just line Vaughn on the backup all game long and see what happens. But in this case, I'm going to say that this is going to definitely still be a close one because when you have the battle of two quarterbacks like this, um, no lead is safe. But I have Buffalo edging them out probably by set, maybe three to seven points is going to be a really, really close one. So I will definitely lean with Buffalo and they will uh, they will lock up hopefully home field advantage. Yeah, this is an absolute toss up for me in this one. And to be quite honest with you, I could pick either team in this game and I could probably list a bunch of reasons why. But I'm going to agree with you on this one. I just have a little bit more faith in Buffalo than I do Cincinnati. And to be quite honest with you, Kev, even though the Joe Burrow and Josh Allen are some of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, they have not been playing like it the last couple of weeks. Both quarterbacks have been relatively struggling with the amount of turnovers that they've been experiencing. I mean, Joe Burrow had two interceptions last week. One of them was a pick six. Josh Allen had an absolutely atrocious interception against the Bears last week. Granted, you know, the Bills won by three touchdowns in that game, but it's these turnover issues that just seem to plague both quarterbacks right now. And, you know, fortunately for, I'd say both quarterbacks, that they have a good enough team around them to still get these W's on the board. But I think when it comes to this game specifically, I think it's going to come down to who's going to make the, the most amount of mistakes, the quarterback position. And to be quite honest with you, it honestly, it's kind of both. The only factor that I have in Buffalo's favor over Cincinnati is I think that Buffalo just has a better performing defense. And like you said, that they've been winning more of these games recently by a wider margin. When it comes to the Bengals, they've been winning these games, but it's come at a very close margin in some of these games. So overall, you know, I have the Bills winning this one. It is going to be a close game, though. And I, I'm of the mindset that this is not going to be a showdown where both quarterbacks are lighting it up and this is going to be like a 41 to 38 score i don't see that happening usually when it comes to this point in the season you know weather's going to play a factor and you know you don't necessarily see quarterbacks lighting it up like they may have done two months ago when it was relatively warmer and i think when it comes to this game in particular for buffalo Kev, you basically hit it on the head as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think that they have to run the ball effectively and they have to create a well-balanced attack on the ground. And, you know, when you have Devin Singletary and James Cook combined for basically over 200 yards rushing, and then you have some yards that Josh Allen could get from scrambling out of the pocket, extending plays with his feet, I think that's going to be a formula that they can work with in this game. And then you combine that with what they're able to do defensively. I do think that that Buffalo is going to be able to force a turnover or two against Joe Burrow, just because, you know, Burrow's a great quarterback. I don't want to lose sight of that, but Burrow has these moments where he just throws these inadvertent interceptions and it has cost them. When I look at the Bengals last week, the Bengals were up 22 to nothing at halftime against new England. And the second half of the game, 
they couldn't score any points against New England. And New England has a good defense. So you give credit where it's due. New England definitely deserves that. But, you know, when you get shut out in the second half and you're up by three possessions and you be, you barely win the game, New England had a very good chance to win that game at the end. Um, it's just Cincinnati's defense came up with a really good stop at the end uh, to get them that win. But overall, it's like, you know, your struggle against a team like New England and you're going up against a team like Buffalo, that presents an entirely different challenge. And I think that Cincinnati has a very good chance to win this game. I don't want to lose sight of that. I just think that Buffalo has a better chance to win simply just because I think they're a more well-rounded unit than the Bengals right now. I think the Bengals, as far as I see it, they're a good team. They're a really good team. They've been very hot the last couple of weeks, but I just think that with what Josh Allen can do, with what their run game could do, and their defense forcing turnovers, you could basically kind of say the same thing with the Bengals' defense, defense as well. They can force turnovers as well. I just think that Buffalo is going to create more opportunities for them to capitalize on and take advantage of than the Bengals. And unfortunately for the Bengals, I think they're going to fall a little bit short in this one. If I had to put a score on it, I'm going to say that the Bills win this one by about three or four points. At most, I think this maybe is a touchdown win for the Bills. If I had to put a score on it, I'm going to say they win this one by the score of like 28 to 24. I think this is going to come down to the end, but I think it's going to come down to Joe Burrow is going to make a timely error. He's going to make a mistake, and I think the Bills are going to capitalize on it. I wouldn't be surprised if the Bills defense comes up with some sort of like game-winning interception or some sort of defensive stop that gets them this win at the end. I think this is going to be a great game nonetheless. It has huge implications for the number one seed in the AFC, and I think, Kev, I'm with you 100% on this one. I think Buffalo bumps up to like a 13-3 record, and I think as far as I see it, uh, they still have a very good pathway forward to get that number one seed and get the only buy in the first round of the playoffs since we only have the one buy uh, for the number one seed instead of two compared to years back. So I got the Bills in this one. I think this is going to be a great game nonetheless, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys it as much as I will because this is going to be a great game. Uh, potential game of the year, obviously. I mean, when you talk about, again, two MVP caliber teams, just very, very, very similar in record. I just, I feel like this, if, if it turned out to be a shootout, I'd be happier than a pig and shit. Because oh, again, I, I, I just want to see them just go off. I want to see Joe go for like four touchdowns. I want to see Josh toss off like four touchdowns. It's just genuinely, I don't believe that's going to be the case. And we'll we'll just have to kind of see what happens with, you know, how the game kind of proceeds and how it goes. But Kyle's made some great points in terms of Joe's late uh, forced turnovers in the last couple of games. It's just very uncharacteristic of him. And uh, I don't know if that's him trying to force things. I don't know if that's disagreements with the play calling or if he's just not seeing receivers or just quite frankly, not maybe seeing defenders. But there have been some instances where you kind of look sideways like, where was that going, you know? Well, well, Kev, kind of look at it from this perspective. You know, I mean, we grew up during the era of Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. It wasn't necessarily like them running, like, you know, running and gunning, throwing for like 45, 50 touchdowns at first. Like, no. they made their fair share of mistakes early on. And when it comes to Joe Burrow and Josh Allen, Kev, they're still, I don't want to say like they're in the infancy of their NFL career, but they're still in the early stage of their career yet. And to be quite honest with you, I don't think either of them are in their primes yet. I could say maybe Josh Allen is kind of approaching that point just because he's getting into his mid-20s. Joe Burrow's still relatively young. And I think, you know, 
both of these guys are going to be major players when it comes to the top quarterbacks in the AFC for the next five to 10 years. But there's going to be mistakes by both quarterbacks. And we've seen that this year. And it's not uncharacteristic to see that, especially with guys that are still kind of like within that, what, three to five year window of them being in the NFL. I think really once you get about like six, seven years into the league, you really get your feet underneath you. You know, that's what I think you're really going to see just more consistent play and less turnovers from both quarterbacks. I think both quarterbacks are still kind of figuring out. And look, these guys are always going to take chances. Some Sometimes you're going to put up a 50-50 ball and, you know, you give your receiver a, a chance to get it. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes you just make an inadvertent throw and it works against you. Like, it happens. But as far as I see, I mean, this is going to be a great game. You know, no matter what happens in the quarterback matchup, I think, you know, when it comes to these two teams specifically, you know, these teams could legitimately be the number one seed in the AFC as far as I see it. Obviously, you still have to contend with the Chiefs. The Chiefs are still one of the top dogs in the AFC with Patrick Mahomes leading the way. But I'm never going to count both these guys out. I I think both of these guys have earned the respect that they deserve. I mean, Joe went to a Super Bowl last year. I mean, Josh Allen pretty much had the game-winning touchdown to Gabriel Davis in the AFC Divisional round last year. And if it wasn't for a miracle drive by Patrick Mahomes, like 13 seconds left to drive them down 60 yards for a game-tying field goal, you know, we could have had a Joe Burrow-Josh Allen AFC Championship game last year. And that would have been phenomenal. I know we got Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow, and I'm not sliding at that either. Hell no. But, I mean, overall... I. When it comes to the AFC and the quarterback competition, I think it's going to be absolutely elite, you know, for the next five to 10 years. It's just when it comes to these mistakes that they've been making, I think that just kind of comes with the territory. They're still adjusting. And I think it will get to a point when their overall comfort will improve as time goes along. And then you just kind of learn from the mistakes, you know, fair enough. It it comes with the territory. It, It doesn't surprise me that both guys are turning the ball over a little bit more than we've been normally accustomed to. I mean, Brady and Manning had years where they turned the ball over 14, 15 times when it came to interceptions. That that happened. It wasn't like Brady and Manning were putting up 50 touchdowns and they only had like eight interceptions at first. You know, Ratios Man- like that aren't exactly common and they definitely weren't common back then when like, we were growing up. Yeah, but it took them like four to five years, maybe even six. I know Brady took like six years to get to that point. But I mean, I mean, Peyton Manning started out his career with what, like, 20 some uh, interceptions. I think 27 or 26, um, I, I, which was an all time record for a while until Russell Wilson tied him, I, I think. Well, the, the Jameis had his famous season where he threw 30. No, I'm but, saying uh, for, for a rookie. Oh, for like a rookie? Peyton, Peyton broke the rookie record for most interceptions in a year at one point. I forget what it, it was. It, it was imagine, in the 20s. Imagine if that had happened today. He, he get killed. He get absolutely yeah. killed. And I will say, give credit to the Colts coaching staff for hanging in there with him, letting him make the mistakes. Because I think if it had been today, I think a lot of GMs and a lot of front offices probably would have cut bait. They would have cut ties. Maybe. You have somebody that is that that is lacking in that type of production. You know, I mean, look at Zach Wilson. I mean, that's different though. I, I mean, I understand that he's struggling. It's just. 20 intercept like 25 plus interceptions in a rookie year. I mean, I don't think a lot of GMs, I don't think a lot of teams would have the patience for. 
unless that they genuinely believe that they can work through those quarterback issues, especially when it comes to a rookie. But maybe that's just me. I'm just kind of, you know, I, I maybe it's just conjecture, but I just I don't know if teams would have the patience for that if somebody was throwing 25 interceptions in their rookie year. I just don't know. Yeah. Let's say we're fully committed to the guy, but nonetheless, um, I think this is going to be a great battle when we got Josh Allen and Joe Burrow going at it on Monday. I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic, and I hope everybody gets a chance to watch it, especially when it's in prime time. Hell yeah. uh, But with that said, uh, our last topic of conversation in the NFL is going to be towards J.J. Watt. Uh, J.J. Watt did announce that he is going to retire at the end of this NFL season. Uh, He plays for the Arizona Cardinals, and they have no chance to make it into the playoffs. So there will will not be any sort of magical playoff run, potentially or hypothetically, for the Cardinals this year. So once Week 18 comes to a a close, it will cap uh, a pretty significant career for J.J. Watt. Uh, Obviously, he started with the Houston Texans played there for the majority of his career and is going to finish it out as an Arizona Cardinal. So Kev, just to kick this one to you, what are your overall thoughts about JJ Watts career coming to an end now that he is essentially retiring within a week and a half to two weeks from now? I mean, as, as a fan of a team that had to play him twice a year, uh, the man was just a, a constant nuisance to any offensive coordinator, to any quarterback. He was just a, a nightmare to try to scheme against and to try to uh, prepare for because he was able to shed so many blocks. He was able to get to the quarterback. He was able to tackle for loss. I mean, in some instances, he, would, he was even able to score touchdowns for the offense. J.J. Watt was a once-in-a-lifetime generational pass rusher because of what he was able to do um, with his technique. I mean, the guy was just... He had a pretty bad rookie year, and he finally found a way to make it click. Uh, in the, I think I want to say the the second half of the year, he just kind of turned it up, and he was just kind of creating stuff. And you know, the JJ SWAT terminology came, and then I think he had a couple of uh, I think he had a couple of sacks in one game where he found a way to turn it around. And again, it, it, Houston was a dying organization. I mean, obviously, right now they still are without Deshaun Watson, but. The, the the man found a way to make a bad team competitive. He found a way to make a a, a well known bad team uh, entertaining to watch on the defensive side. I mean, he was getting sacks what seemed to be almost every game. And I mean, just to go over some of his accolades, I mean, he was a five time proler, five time five time Pro Bowler, five time All Pro. He was in the All Twenty Tens team, Defensive Player of the Year a multitude of times. Uh, man of the, uh, Walter Payton, man of man of the year, uh, the, 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 uh, over 111 sacks, and still counting because obviously he still has two games, so he could easily eclipse um, 112, 113, or whatever have you. I mean, 27 forced fumbles for his career, over 400 tackles, and the man was always hurt, torn pec, uh, messed up his knee. I mean, multiple concussions. J.J. Watt was a a staple of consistency and overcoming a multitude of injuries so many different times, but he still was able to compete competitively. And um, I mean, like I said, man, the, the, the impact he had for Houston and the impact he was able to provide for uh, Arizona while he was there was, was nothing short of incredible. What an amazing leader, uh, a great model to kind of like, you know, uh, model your game after, or should I say role model to model your game after for anybody up and coming. And I mean, the Houston fans booed him on draft night when he was drafted 10 or 11th overall, and he found a way to make all of them regret the booze. So 
Shout out to JJ on an incredible career. You will be missed. The impact you had on the game, not only on, but off the field was incredible. And, uh, you know, good luck to you in retirement. And congratulations on being a new dad. I will say, if he were to come out of retirement because of how much peak physical form he was still, it, it, he's still in, I wouldn't be surprised, like, you know, to make a run somewhere down the field, like next year for like a Super Bowl or something like that. Or maybe even a year from now or something like that. I don't know. But again, J.J. Watt, congratulations on an incredible career. A definite Hall of Famer. Yeah, Kev, I mean, you pretty much laid it out as best as I could. I mean, when it comes to J.J. Watt, I mean, Kev, the guy is just a freak of nature. I mean, yeah. I understand that he's at, you know, the end of his career. But Kev, I think he, if I have the stats right, I believe he's the only player in NFL history to have multiple seasons of 20 plus sacks i think he actually holds the nfl record in that regard and then not only that i believe he also has um i think he has two seasons and i believe it's also another nfl record where he led the league in sacks twice um crazy the the, the fact that he was so consistent and despite the fact that he had so many injuries throughout his career is astonishing and you know to play like a to play for an organization like the houston texans that's just a bad luck of the draw as far as I'm concerned. And I will say there was a point in time, probably I would say in the early 2010s, maybe like on the beginning edge of like the mid 2010s where the Texans were a legitimate team in the AFC. And you know, what's kind of funny, Kev. I remember a specific game where JJ Watt, they were going up against new England and I believe it was a Monday night game. And this is when I thought Houston was really one of those top teams in the AFC and they brought a lot of confidence and swagger into that game. They were bringing, I think they all wore like Leatherman jackets going into that game. And even though that it didn't work out for Houston in that game, I think the Patriots beat them pretty handily in that game. It, it didn't really matter the result as far as I'm concerned. It was really just the swagger and the confidence that they brought uh, on the field. Granted, it didn't work out. But, you know, I thought that J.J. was just one of those guys that you always had to account for on the defensive side of the ball, no matter who no matter who they went up against. And, you know, the consistency that he was he was able to establish year in and year out. I mean, it was kind of infectious because now you see T.J. Watt, his brother, just going out there and absolutely dominating for the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's just it's absolutely phenomenal what this Watt family has been able to generate when it comes to NFL talent. And J.J. was the one that got it started off for. So, you know, when it comes to J.J., obviously this is not like a fairy tale ending where he's going to win a Super Bowl and ride out into the sunset as a Super Bowl champion. But I think the biggest thing for me is he might finally have a chance to walk away from the game healthy. And, you know, it kind of shows because, I mean, you could tell that he's definitely earned some uh, some scars along the way in his NFL career. I know with, like, Usually he has like this huge uh, arm brace on one of his arms. It's either his left or his right arm. I just forget which arm it is. But you know, not only that. I mean, I, he he's had to deal with uh, with leg injuries, knee issues. I mean, it's really been kind of like a a cascade of injuries that he sustained throughout his NFL career. And to me, I think that was really one of the biggest hindrances when it came to his career overall. It's just the injuries just kind of bit him in the ass at the wrong time. But even with that said. He had a hell of an NFL career, and um, obviously I wish he were in a situation where he was going to win a Super Bowl. Unfortunately, it's not going to work out that way. But I think the biggest thing for him at this point is 
I think he could walk away from the game as healthy as he can this season. Hopefully he can and it doesn't end in some sort of like, you know, bad injury to to cap his career. But overall, I think he I think he has a bright future outside of football. Obviously, like you said, Kev, a brand new father, and I think he's gonna pay a lot of time and attention to that. And I think as far as I see it, he, he had a hell of a career. And it's something to be ashamed of. When you play in the NFL for a decade plus, you have over 100 sacks. You're regarded as one of the forces of nature when it came, when it comes to defensive pass rushes in the past decade. I mean, that says something. So, I mean, as far as I see it, J.J. had an outstanding career. Unfortunately, he's not a Super Bowl champion. I think that would have just been something nice that he could add to his resume. But as far as I see it, he probably got to live out his dream to the best of his abilities. And I think overall, I think he could walk away from the game looking back at it with a smile. Even despite all the injuries that he sustained, I I think that he got to live his dream and did it extremely effectively. So overall, you know, I I give a tip to the cap uh, to JJ. I think he's earned it. And um, who knows? He may even find himself in Canton one day with what he was able to do throughout those 2010s. I think that he's definitely made a case for it. But overall, if I just had to round this out, just congrats to J.J. Watt on a fantastic career. And uh, I hope nothing but the best for the guy as he continues uh, his life beyond football. Yeah. No, I mean, again, being a Colts fan and literally. It nuisance, like, that was a nuisance, oh, like you said. He was, it was like, he was uh, nasty, what side bro. is he lining up on? Is he going to be a DT? Is he going to be a DN? Is, even when he dropped back into coverages, there were signs where he'd bat balls down and even on the occasion get an interception. You're just looking at it like, is is there something he can't do? Like, 6'5", 200-some-odd pounds. Like, how is it that you're that quick off the line of scrimmage, that strong to move tackles, tight ends, and just destroy running backs mm-hmm. and still get to the quarterback and then tackle for loss? I mean, he's a, dude, some of the, the technique that he's able to do, even this season, like you've seen, I don't know if you saw last week's game against Tampa where he was just able to get off the, the guard to where he... He faked out, swam over, and was able to get into the backfield within what what seemed to be a blink of an eye, but like a half second. It's 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 players like him that make me love defense so much more than offense because it's like you don't expect someone of that size to be able to do things like that. And defensive linemen, defensive tackles can change a game with just plays like that. Confidence, turnovers, tackle for losses. I mean, again. I'm not going to go on and on. The point is, J.J. Watt will 100% have a gold jacket uh, this time in, in maybe five, six years. I think so. It's it's without a doubt. You know, it's just, I guess one more point to make about J.J. I could never question his effort. That Hell team no. was going to be running and gunning, give it 110, 120% every single play. And I remember, I think this is in one of his last seasons with the Texans. He had a post-game press conference at the end of the year. And the Texans sucked. They were like 4-11. and I mean, sub 500 is an understatement. They were just one of the worst teams in the NFL. And he was basically giving this diatribe, but I think it was an accurate diatribe, where he basically was questioning guys on whether or not that they brought the necessary effort to be able to go out there and play football. And it was simply just because it's like, look, you know, we have fans, speaking about the Texans fans, that are showing up to the games knowing that we suck. And they have to struggle to watch the game as you know we struggle on the field that we just can't perform to our expectations and he was basically putting it on his teammates it's like look 
you have to step up and you have to go above and beyond you know, to go out there and win football games. And if he didn't see you playing up to standard or playing beyond that standard, he didn't think that you deserved to be there. And, you know, he, he was really of the mindset of, you know, it's an honor and a privilege to play the game, but you have to go out there and show that every single week when you're out there on the field. And he's one of the very few players that I think ever really vo- vocalized that in a post-game press conference where it was like, no, like he was putting that standard on the players. And it's like, this is the standard. If you don't reach it, you don't deserve to be here. And I think... So much respect was, for him after that I, conversation, bro. Ridiculous. I, 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 I think, to be honest with you, you don't really hear that that often anymore. I mean, maybe... Not in this pri- generation. Maybe privately. Maybe, like, I think one example, um, maybe Buda Baker, where he really kind of put it on his teammates to step up to another level when he was just tired of losing. And I totally get it because the Cardinals... I mean, let's face it. And I mean, Jamal and Jamal Williams, I think it was... Um, last season or something like that, he was crying or maybe hard knocks this season. I don't remember, but yeah. yeah, players like that, that are emotionally invested vocal leaders and aren't ashamed or scared to call out teammates that aren't participating or giving it their all. I mean, I, I mentioned this generation and this is the literal last point before we go into our next topic. Um, they're entitled. They feel like, Oh, I made it here. I don't have to try anymore. I, I got my contract. So I don't need to, I don't need to put in all this effort or what is, what is me putting my body on the line for a team that's eliminated from playoff contention or whatever the list of excuses you can rattle off for athletes nowadays? Why would I do that? Because you you made it. Because it's your job. Because you are a role model to kids and other people all around the world. Like people literally, like you said, your team sucks. They're paying to still come and see you, to put on a show, to be competitive. You don't just put on pads and a team's helmet logo or a, a, a helmet with a logo on it just to go out there and eh, I'll put in. A, I'll try a couple plays and, and, and do it for the check. You know, and, and trust me, like there are guys that just once they get that major contract, they do it for the check and they kind of run through the motions. It, Kevin, I mean, it's not a, it's not really uncommon to see once guys get paid. They fall back. Never the they, same. Just kind of, yep. they just kind of go into the motions. Yep. They just kind of do it into the. They do it for the check, and then basically within like three or four years after their contract, it's like they're satisfied. They're they're done. Like basically that one big contract is what they're playing for, and that's it. As far as they see it, like they're satisfied. But it's like, you know, you have fans that are going out of their way to watch you play at a professional level, and the fact that JJ Watt was one of those players that actually stood up at the mic and, and put it out there to the world. It's like, guys, we have to be better than just going through the motions because we have fans that are paying hundreds of dollars to watch us play every single week. And we're going to put out a shitty product by just going through the motions and lose the majority of our games. That's not acceptable. And honestly, nobody is above that. I don't care how much you're getting paid. I don't know. I don't care what your status is in the NFL. Facts. Like, if you don't show up to play and you don't bring the effort that's necessary week in and week out, you don't deserve to be there, no matter how much you're getting paid. So, I, I, you know, the, the fact that JJ put that type of comment out to the world in a public forum instead of a private one, you know, that was, I think, the last couple of years he was in Houston. It was just something that I always look back to, and I look back as a very fond memory of JJ Watt. I mean, obviously, you know, what he did on the field speaks for itself, but... I think it spoke to a different level when he brought that to a, to basically a public attention. Uh, 
on a subpar team where he knew the team wasn't going to go anywhere. And I can appreciate that because I never, it's like I said at the top, I'll never question the guy's effort ever. Nope. Guy, the guy was always a constant, no matter if he was 75% or a hundred percent, the guy would try to put his team in a position to win every single week. So I give the guy kudos for that. Uh, but with that said, we are going to transition to, it's a very more of a passing, you know, more of a, yeah, a mention, mention I, while go. We don't want to dwell on negatives. Yeah. I mean, it's very rare that, you know, Kevin and I go out of our way to uh, talk about the game of soccer, but I think, I think we definitely deserve to have this, um, definitely have to have this, uh, this quick uh, mention of Pele. I mean, Pele is one of the best soccer players that's ever played the game. And unfortunately he passed away at the age of 82. Kev, I mean, he's the originator. He was the original GOAT. I mean, king of the beautiful game. I mean, whatever sort of description that you want to place upon Pele in a positive light, he represented that, and probably more than that. And, I mean, the guy won three World Cups for Brazil. I mean, he's the only player in the entire history of soccer to ever do that. You know, I know that there's some great soccer players out there. I know Messi just won his first World Cup. Pele won three. It's absolutely nuts, the, the level of consistency that he brought to the game. And I know he wasn't in our generation. He came before our time. But, you know, somebody had to set the standard for where soccer is at now. And Pele was that guy as far as I'm concerned. So, Kev, just give me your overall thoughts on Pele's legacy. And unfortunately, it comes on his passing at the age of 82, though. I mean, Kyle laid it out. Three World Cups are obviously the original OG. I mean, the, the 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 guy was able to carry a nation on his shoulders. Every I mean, World Cups are every four years. He was able to keep that level of consistency for 12 years. I mean, he is arguably, if not literally, the greatest Brazilian soccer player of all time. I mean, people can make the argument now because, you know, Neymar in terms of being athletically gifted and his ability to touch the ball. But again, until Neymar is able to hoist three World Cups for his nation, I don't think that's going to be a conversation that people want to have. So, I mean, what he's been able to do for the sport of soccer, what he's been able to do afterwards in terms of for the community, for for, for younger people across different countries, um, the impact that he's had overall to the game of soccer, how he's been able to communicate to the younger generation. I mean, Pele was an incredible role model in that sense uh, and, and what he was able to do for the game on and off of the field. But Literally, I mean, it's it's like you said, when you talk about the Mount Rushmore of football, he is the first name you would probably think of outside of Ronaldinho, Messi, uh, Ronaldo. I mean, like everybody has their different names for their for their goats, right? But you can't talk to a soccer fan, a soccer enthusiast, or a soccer connoisseur and not mention the name of Pele. So it is sad, it is unfortunate that, you know, his passing comes around the holiday season as well. But I mean, at 82 years old, uh, I would assume based on what we've seen with, you know, the media, the Internet and what we were able to portray in some of his highlights, because obviously Kyle and I weren't around, I would say that he lived a pretty good life. So, I mean, you know, rest in peace to the to the greatest soccer player and uh, hopefully his legacy continues to live on and, 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 and many others. Yeah, but I just want to give you just a quick rundown on what is on his own Wikipedia page. I, I just want to give you just a quick rundown of this. Yeah. He was listed 
in like the top um i think time had a list of like the 100 most influential people in the 20th century he was on that list you know i don't know how many human beings there were in the 20th century there were a lot the fact that he, he was in the top 100 is just utterly insane it was just it really kind of goes to show his impact that he brought not only to soccer not only to brazil but the entire world based on just his overall stature uh from the game that he played kept he played in 1,363 games. He scored 1,279 goals. He was basically scoring a goal a game. That average is utterly insane. And granted, I know that it was before our time. I fully understand that. But still, like, you know, when you're scoring a goal a game, basically, that's insane. There's a very, very small minority of players that ever do that in any sport, you know. In the in the world of soccer, I mean, that's just, it's utterly unheard of. And not only that, he was voted the player of the, the, excuse me, he was voted world player of the century by FIFA. Not just of the decade, of the century. You know, you go from 1901 to, to 1999 or 1900 to 1999. He's the number one guy. I mean... The name speaks for itself. I mean, like you said, Kev, I mean, the guy is without a doubt the greatest Brazilian soccer player that's ever played the game. And as far as I see it, you know, depending on who you ask, you know, if you talk to somebody who's probably like above 40, they're probably going to say Pele is the greatest soccer player ever, just because that was probably the person that they could identify with. And I think if you talk to somebody who's probably 40 and younger, it's probably messy. Um, since he just won that that World Cup uh, a couple of weeks ago with Argentina, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the game that is played right now, the modern day soccer, Pele is the originator of that, and it, it's kind of funny. Just I think we kind of get caught in this in this mindset of prisoner of the moment, where Messi is obviously getting a lot of shine and respect based on what he did with Argentina with winning one World Cup. The fact that Pele did it not once, not twice, but three separate times is utterly astonishing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it takes his death for us to talk about him just because, you know, we don't really talk about soccer a lot. But I think it kind of goes without saying. Pele is probably one of the most influential figures to come out of the sports realm ever. You know, there's been some great players that have come from respective sports, from different respective sports all across the world. Pele is one of those guys that is just iconic, not only just in Brazil, but around the world. And I know that um, that his loss is definitely going to be, uh, it's going to be a tough hit for Brazil just because of what his stature is to that country. But, uh, you know, just to kind of wrap this up, Pele is just it's Pele like his name speaks for itself and honestly I'll leave it like this if I could just literally just name off somebody's name and it's just their first name and you know who it is you don't even have to say the last name that puts you in a whole different stratosphere you know because the Pele the, the name speaks for itself and the guy earned it you know, not just in the realm of soccer, but probably what he did outside of soccer as well, because that guy, that guy basically carried a whole country on his back when he played 
it just do was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, obviously rest in peace to him. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, he was able to live, uh, a very successful life. And uh, I think for him, there's probably no regrets at the end. Not but, at all. Uh, but uh, no, I just, I think it was probably uh, appropriate to, uh, to give the man his respect, obviously posthumously now that he's uh, unfortunately passed away. But honestly, I mean, what a life the guy lived. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but uh, Kev, we're reaching the end of the episode. We got two more, uh, segments to knock out. We're going to go over our best of and worst of of 2022. So basically what we're going to do, you guys, is we're just going to go over who we thought were the top performers of 2022. We'll go over the worst performers of 2022. It could be an individual. It could be an overall team. Um, Kevin's going to go over the best of. I'll go over the worst of. So, Kev, I'll, I'm going to give you the floor on this one. Who were your top performers that you could look back to in the year of 2022? I mean, my top performers easily for 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 me are definitely going to be the Golden State Warriors overcoming the odds and winning their fourth championship in the last what is it seven or eight years. Uh, obviously, everybody thought they were washed. I mean, Steph was never able to get the Finals MVP. Clay was coming off of multiple injuries. Draymond is trash. KD's not there. Andrew Wiggins was never worth the number one overall pick. All the overhype with Jordan Poole, and they win the chip. You know what I'm saying? They come and they and they beat a good Boston team, and they find a way to put that fourth ring on their hand, and and, and it was very well deserved. I think that they overcame a lot of adversity that season. They they definitely silenced a lot of the haters. And I think that they rightfully deserve to hoist up the trophy and and be listed as one of the better, if not one of the best teams of 2022 in all of sports. Then you go into uh, baseball. Aaron Judge, he was offered uh, a, a mediocre deal compared to what he ended with for $213 million to start the year. If I'm not mistaken, at some point he got that in March. Turns it down, bets on himself, and breaks the AL home run record with 62 home runs, wins the AL MVP, and carries the Yankees into the ALCS. Granted, the result wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what any Yankee fan wanted. But in terms of an athlete to go out there and 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 really just bet on everything that you possibly have at 30 years old to say, I, I'm, I'm turning this down and I definitely am going to compete for a better, a better contract. Nine years, $360 million later, the Yankees got their guy and Aaron Judge has an incredible historic season. So, I mean, athlete-wise, Aaron Judge had an absolutely phenomenal year. And then in terms of an overall country, I know this is a lot more recently, so uh, excuse me, a lot more recent, but I'm going to go with Argentina and Messi winning the World Cup. They haven't won since 1986. Messi has come very, very close, I believe, one or two times in his career in terms of playing for Argentina. They hoist up their trophy, uh, beating France in penalty kicks, uh, despite Mbappe scoring three goals and one of them being a PK in uh, penalty kicks. I... Can't really make an argument, man. I know that we talked about the Golden State Warriors having the impact in the NBA and being one of the best teams, but in terms of on a global scale, for Argentina to finally hoist up that trophy against the juggernaut opponent that is France and overcoming all the odds and Messi saying that this was potentially his last World Cup, I think that that is enough for me to go out and say that that was a top performance. Again, although it was just a few weeks ago, that was 100% a top performance by the country of Argentina led by Lionel Messi. Yeah, Kev, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to those three individual performers or teams, however you look at it, I think that I think that it's appropriate. I think, you know, with Golden State, you know, the fact that they were able to recapture uh, another NBA title when, 
to be quite honest with you, I think a lot of people had kind of written off Golden State with their championship window coming to a close uh, just simply just because injuries looked like they were becoming too much of a factor for Golden State. Obviously, age was a factor in the fact that they were able to go up against a team like the Boston Celtics and beat them in the manner that they did. Uh, I think that's something that I'll always look back to in uh, good standing with them. And I, I'll never forget, I think ESPN gave the Celtics like an 85% chance to win that series before that series started. They gave Golden State no chance to win that series as far as I saw it, which I thought was disrespectful. Crazy. But the fact that they were able to go out there and just establish that championship pedigree that they've largely maintained since, what, 2014, 2015, it's really just a testament to them, and I, I think it's definitely worth it. I mean, obviously, when it comes to Aaron Judge, what can you say? The guy sets the AL home run record. I mean, that record had stood for how long, Kev? 60, since 1961. So, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's like 60 61 years. years. It's absolutely insane what Judge was able to do. Obviously, it didn't result in a World Series championship for the Yankees. But nonetheless, I mean, when it comes to an individual season in the American League, I mean, you're talking about a lifetime from the last AL home run leader to this one. It's absolutely phenomenal what Judge and I what what Judge did, and I think he definitely deserved that uh, contract extension from the Yankees. And I know that was, uh, I know that for you that was a little bit iffy after uh, the the uh, postseason had ended the way it did for the Yankees. Um, I mean, overall, I thought I thought you pretty much hit the nail on the head with Argentina and Messi. They obviously deserve the the credit that they get just because you know Messi finally captures that elusive World Cup final victory. Um, honestly, I, the way that I've seen Argentina celebrate a World Cup is unlike anything I've ever seen before. I mean, I think it's been probably two weeks since they won that World Cup, and I don't think they've stopped. I mean, I was watching videos uh, when the team got back just a, probably like seven to ten days ago. Kev, there were millions of people in the street. I mean, you had over, you had overpasses, you had highways, you had streets that were literally filled with millions of people in Buenos Aires. It was absolutely insane. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I've seen Super Bowl uh, parades. I've seen teams win championships in the United States. And, and trust me, there's been a decent showing from the fans. It, it, it pales in comparison to what Argentina uh, did for their country and the country is just celebrating they're they're on an absolute high as far as i've seen it and uh i think it's well deserved and um you know th this is the unfortunate part um uh, about 2022 we have to kick it to the worst performers of 2022 and uh kev give me the uh give me the run-up to this one i mean so kyle i mean with, with 2022 having ups and downs what are your top three worst performances of the year? I'm not really going to go in any specific order, but if I had to give just the three off the top of my list right here, I have to go with the, the Los Angeles Rams, Russell Wilson, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it may seem like I'm kind of digging at Los Angeles because I got the Rams and the Dodgers in this list, but I think, I think there's definitely some criticism that they rightly deserve based on how this year has gone from them. I will start with the Rams. I mean, the Rams, I will give them credit. They started off the year very well with winning a Super Bowl championship against the Cincinnati Bengals to start the year. But after that, it's been just an absolute disaster. This was a team that had 
back-to-back Super Bowl aspirations and with the roster that they had constructed and and obviously the core guys that they had maintained uh, from that team last year, it looked like the Rams were in prime position to go after another Super Bowl run this year, and it ended in outright catastrophe. They are the worst team in the NFC West. It's been probably the biggest drop-off that I've seen from a Super Bowl champion uh, to the next season with just the incompetence that they've had as a whole. Uh, the defense has been bad. Matt Stafford has looked inconsistent. Sean McVay's coaching ability looks like it has taken a major hit this year. And it's just from a big picture perspective, the entire season for the Rams has been an absolute letdown. And uh, from it to come from a Super Bowl championship just the year prior uh, is utterly astonishing to me in a negative fashion. And uh, as far as I see it, they definitely deserve uh, to be in this unfortunate category of being one of the worst performers of 2022 in the sports world. After that, I got to kick it to Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson, with the level of play that he that he has brought this year, it's just been an outright travesty this year. Uh, there was a lot of hope for the Denver Broncos to be potentially a Super Bowl caliber team this year when the Denver Broncos made the trade with Seattle to bring Russell Wilson into the fold. And you could tell that the Broncos put a lot of investment into Russell Wilson for the foreseeable future. They gave him a five-year, $245 million contract after that trade was finalized. That's a major extension to give to Russell Wilson. And he has followed it up with just a subpar year. Subpar year is kind of putting it mildly. It's just been an atrocious year for Russell Wilson this year. He has 12 touchdowns to nine interceptions. The offense is dead last in points per game. And there have been multiple times where Russell Wilson and the offensive players and the offensive coaching staff have just been kind of going at it. And it obviously bubbled over and just an outright atrocious loss to the Los Angeles Rams. And I mean, I just brought up the Rams uh, just a couple of seconds ago. The Rams are a terrible team. They got beat by Baker Mayfield by like 35 points. The The Broncos gave up 51 points, and I believe the Broncos only scored like 14 or 17 points in that game. It's just an outright travesty with Russell Wilson. Obviously, he has taken a major step back. Uh, it may look like the Denver Broncos are regretting that trade with Seattle this past offseason. And when it comes to Russell Wilson specifically, I mean, he's the leader of the offense and he has failed in every single regard that I can imagine with him this season. It's been a major letdown year for him and the Broncos. And I think it's well-deserved to be in this unfortunate category, once again, of being one of the worst performers of 2022. And then the last one, when it comes to worst performers of 2022, is going to be the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers were the cream of the crop in the National League this year in Major League Baseball, and they felt incredibly short by getting upset by the San Diego Padres in the divisional round of the NL playoffs. It was just utterly shocking to see a team that had I mean, just absolutely ran through the regular season. You know, when you see somebody, when you see a team get over 100 wins in Major League Baseball, that's an incredible season. And usually it warrants some sort of playoff run. But the Dodgers were in a completely different stratosphere. The Dodgers won over 110 games. And, you know, when you look at the entire landscape or the entire history of Major League Baseball, there are very few teams that have ever been able to put up that type of winning percentage where they're winning 
basically damn near 70 to 75% of their games. And for it to end in just an utter embarrassment in the essentially take take away the wild card round. Essentially the first round of major the major league playoffs when it comes to all the teams that are in that moment. It's just an utter travesty as far as I see it. And you know, the Dodgers are one of those teams that are always sort of in that World Series type of contention. And I'll say this, I mean, they were one of the teams that I had a pretty big expectation to go all the way to the World Series and potentially win it. And for them to lose the way in the manner that they did, it was extremely disappointing. And um, to be quite honest with you, I don't know if they're going to be able to bounce back from something like that. I mean, they still have a good overall team and you can never really count them out, but I don't know how you're going to be able to bounce back from winning 110 games and you lose in the first round of the playoffs to the Padres. And, you know, maybe they can get it back, but it's going to be a tough one nonetheless. So um, that pretty much rounds out um, who I consider the top three worst performers of 2022 in the sports world. Uh, definitely the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, Russell Wilson is in that conversation. And to round it out, the Los Angeles Dodgers. But that's who I have as the worst of 2022 as far as I see it. The year's been stacked with good and bad performances from players, teams falling short, teams overachieving. I mean, again, it, it overall sports have just been an incredible asset for the year as a whole, keeping us distracted and keeping us focused on something other than our daily life problems. So, you know, no matter the year, no matter what happens, sports will always be there. And I know I, I speak for Kyle and myself when I say, thank God for sports, because <laughs> You know, they, they they keep us happy and distracted and busy in our everyday lives. And again, no matter if our teams are horrible, if the teams that we support, fantasy football, whatever it is, we are always going to be entertained. And, you know, we are uh, we're just grateful for another year in the books. I know that we are at the end of our episode here, so I will just kind of leave it on this note and let Kyle close it out. Please be safe on New Year's Eve, everybody, despite the plans, despite whatever it is you're going to do. Don't be crazy. Don't be stupid. We all know, again, we're not going to go and advertise it, but if you're going to go and partake in those after late night activities, have a ride for yourself. Have somebody pick you up, call an Uber. Let's not be crazy. We all got to be safe so we can make it into 2023. Let's not do something stupid to end 2022. Yeah, exactly. And um, obviously, I mean, Kev, we're at the end of the year. I mean, it's been a phenomenal year for the podcast. Obviously, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth. Uh, this past year and it's really been on the backs of the support that we've gotten along the way and we honestly i i, I just want to take the time uh, to be able to extend uh my sincere gratitude and i would say just overall appreciation towards uh the people that have supported us along the way uh, kevin and i have been doing this for almost two years at this point and uh, it's just very appreciative i'm very appreciative of the support that we've gotten uh, this year, and we hope that it continues into 2023. And uh, I think we definitely have some things planned out for 2023 that you guys will be excited about. We'll probably get into that later at some point. But um, like Kevin said, obviously, I hope that everybody has a very nice but you know safe uh, New Year's Eve uh, weekend. Hopefully, everybody has a good time. But like Kev said, got to be responsible. Got to know the situation that you're in. And um, I hope that everybody can transition into 2023 and effectively start a new year. And honestly, let's kind of see where it goes from there. So um, 
I say pretty much at the end of every episode, obviously appreciate you guys tuning in, whether it was watching us on YouTube or listening us to us or listening to us on the audio platforms. We definitely appreciate the support. Uh, we will be back in 2023. Uh, we will be starting off relatively early in January. Um, like we kind of said at the top, we're at the end of the NFL season. So uh, we will start ramping up for the playoffs very soon. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised, Kev, if we really start ramping up into some NBA content now that uh, I'm not going to say the NFL content takes a backseat. It's just there won't be as much content uh, to go through in the NFL now that, you know, you're dealing with a limited amount of games once we get into that playoff format. So definitely expect a bump in our NBA content and uh, maybe a maybe a hint of uh, NHL as well if there's some uh, interesting topics at play. But, uh, Kev, I got nothing here to say other than just hope you guys have a, a great New Year's weekend. Stay safe. Enjoy the the, uh, the weekend. And, uh, Kev, the floor is yours. Uh, I got nothing left to say. All right. 2022 comes to an end. We'll be seeing you guys in 2023. Stay safe. Have a good time. We appreciate everything you guys have done, and we'll see you guys later. Peace. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.